This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, July 25th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. There is another excessive heat warning for Fort Smith and much of western Arkansas today. The National Weather Service expects actual high temperatures in the Fort Smith metro this afternoon to reach 105, with heat index values as hot as 111. The excessive heat warning in effect until 8 tonight. Northwest Arkansas highs close to 102, heat index values as high as 107. For Northwest Arkansas, there is a heat advisory until late tonight. More of the same is forecast for tomorrow. On our show today, a dark slice of Arkansas history, Tony Alamo. We'll learn more about his life as a cult leader with the use of archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. That's in about 15 minutes. And later, the hammerhead worms are here. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth explains. First, a new blood test has received FDA breakthrough status approval that can detect more than 50 different kinds of cancer in a patient. And Mercy Hospital in Rogers, as well as in Fort Smith, early among health systems to offer this first-of-its-kind test. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore spoke with Dr. Jay Carlson, the clinical chair for Mercy Research. Dr. Carlson says the gallery blood test is revolutionary, considering that today cancer screening is done individually and on a case-by-case basis. And our current cancer screening would include cancer screening for cervical cancer, for breast cancer, for colon cancer, and for those with a high risk of smoking, lung cancer screening with a low-dose CT scan. So they're, they're each screening for an individual cancer where through one blood draw, the Grail Gallery test screens for 51 different types of cancers. And another unique component of that Grail Gallery test is that it screens for 12 of the most lethal cancers, such as ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, for which we have no current screening capabilities. As someone who's, who's you know, I, I've been lucky enough to, to not have cancer in my life, I feel like I'm probably in a vast minority in that situation. Um, what does it typically look like to screen for uh, cancer? Is it typically done as a blood test? So screening for cancer is, is not typically done as a blood test. Uh, for cervical cancer, it would be a pap smear. For breast cancer, a mammogram. For colon cancer, either what's called a FIT test or a colonoscopy would be the two methods for that. And for lung cancer, it's a low-dose CT scan. And so this is pretty revolutionary, and it kind of stumbled into it, so to speak, meaning that about a decade ago, they started doing non-invasive neonatal screening, looking for circulating placental or fetal cells in, in maternal blood that they could then potentially avoid doing an amniocentesis or something down that line. And not only was it successful for that neonatal evaluation, but when they were doing that, they identified some women having characteristics or signals consistent with cancer. And that led to the this whole company, Grail, breaking away from, from its parent corporation to then pursue this type of testing. And that happened around 2016. So over the last five years, they then had multiple studies done that led to this FDA breakthrough status. You know, as you mentioned, a lot of the other cancer testing is not done through blood. What is it about this testing that it's able to detect in the blood that previous testing could not do? So this type of test 
seeks fragments of cancer that get shed into the blood, and that's called a cancer signal. That cancer signal doesn't mean in and of itself that the patient has cancer. It means that that patient then needs to undergo the diagnostic evaluation that might include a chest x-ray or CT scan, or depending upon what the cancer is, a diagnostic mammography uh, mammography would be another example for, for breast cancer. So it looks for the cancer fragments that get shed into the blood that, that then would lead to a positive signal that then leads to a diagnostic evaluation before we definitively state one has a cancer. So this is a screening test. It's not a blood test that says you have cancer. It's a blood test that says you have a signal that then needs a diagnostic evaluation. I think that one of the other important variables is that this gallery test is not meant to replace our current screening. It's meant to complement our current screening. With its utilization, we would clearly identify patients that our current screening would miss, but until we've got more data or until we understand more as far as how this relates to those U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendation, one should continue to get their mammography, pap smears, colonoscopies, etc., even if they opt to do the GRAIL test. Gotcha. And so this is this is really beneficial because you know we're we're not really and and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're not really at a place where we can definitively prevent cancers from happening, but an early detection means that we're able to combat the, you know, the debilitating factors that happen when we do have full-fledged cancer. Is that right? It is correct in the concept that most of those high-risk cancers are, are actually not diagnosed until their advanced stage, stage three or stage four. Ovarian cancer, for instance, the vast majority of those are are stage three or disease, 70% are stage three. And so this is a test that would look for those cancers in stage one or stage two when the patient is asymptomatic. But this test is completely different than, say, a hereditary screening test. It is not a test that tells you whether you're at increased risk for cancer. This is a test that tells you, do you have a signal for a cancer at that particular point in time? A hereditary signal would be, um, say, a, a BRCA mutation or a Lynch syndrome that, that has an associated risk, lifetime risk of, of cancer. That is not this test. This test is really telling someone whether or not they have a signal at that point in time. Who will see the greatest benefit from this sort of testing? Well, the risk for cancer starts going up after age 50. And so this is not a a test for someone who's young, healthy, and and doesn't have any risk factors. But this would be a test for somebody who, say, does have a germline mutation, like a BRCA mutation, and maybe had mom diagnosed with uh, breast cancer at age 45, that that there's a a patient category where where they should uh, consider this test in their 30s. But most patients, it's going to be for those over the age of 50 or who have otherwise increased risk for cancer, such as obesity or smoking or several different medical risks that through the mercy.net website, our team would review those risks and discern whether or not a patient's a good candidate for this test. What does this testing mean for you in your in your work with patients and in your work with research? Uh, how does this how does this impact you on a professional level? 
my personal history, I'll, I'm happy to share, is that, that, that my dad had five different primary cancers before he died from lung cancer. Wow. And he died 20 years ago. So that this capability was not present at that point in time. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting the test for myself because I, I want to know, is there a signal there? As he was diagnosed in, in his 50s for his first cancer, and I'm currently 65. So that for me, I fit the age criteria, I fit family history type criteria that on a personal level would be a good candidate for this test. On a professional component, you know, we have about 20% of the population potentially has some underlying germline mutation that was an inherited risk. And this would be a test that they could get offered so that we would be able to potentially identify cancers during that stage one and stage two process. With 60% sensitivity, they were able to uh, diagnose stage one and stage two pancreatic cancers. Another classic example where it's typically a stage three or stage four diagnosis before patients are symptomatic. Uh, the blood test is not currently covered by insurance. Patients will pay out of pocket. Um, what do you hope to advocate to insurance companies uh, or you know, th- the people who make those sorts of decisions on an HR-related basis to encourage them to show how important this is and how valuable this is towards a person's health care coverage? The insurance coverage is always going to lag behind the publications, and and I think a a classic example of that is a lot of those recommendations are based on the U.S. U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. But you know we have it's it's only been within the last few years that the the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force changed their recommendation to screen for mammography at 40 age 40 when clinicians were doing that for the last. 20 years, and now um, they've, they've just moved it from 50 to 40, and, and now we've got breast surgeons who are saying that they would prefer to start screening at an even younger age than that based on current literature. And so there will be a lag. It will take time for insurance to pick this up. There are a couple of insurance companies on the East Coast that are offering it for their patient population so that it's not 100% uh, nationwide that everybody's declining it, that there are pockets where it's getting covered. Dr. Jay Carlson is the clinical chair for Mercy Research, and he spoke with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore over the phone last week. Area blood banks and blood collection agencies are celebrating that thousands of people who have been unable to donate blood for 20 years are now cleared once again to donate. The FDA announced people who had spent time in parts of Europe in the 80s, 90s, or even more recently can now give blood. The restrictions were put in place to prohibit people who theoretically may have been exposed to mad cow disease. Based on updated evidence, the FDA's new guidance removes the deferral recommendations associated with the risk of mad cow for time spent in the United Kingdom from 1980 through 1996, in France and Ireland from 1980 to 2001, and a receipt of a blood transfusion in the UK, France, or Ireland since 1980. Critics of Governor Asa Hutchinson's tax cut proposal say there are better uses for the state's $1.6 billion budget surplus. Governor Hutchinson announced earlier this month he would call a special session the week of August 8th for lawmakers to accelerate tax cuts approved last year. 
Bruno Showers, senior policy analyst with Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, says the cuts would lead to a loss in state revenue. The total costs of the tax cuts that they're proposing would be uh, almost $700 million over the next uh, few years. Uh, And the biggest uh, portion of that cost is from the accelerating the individual top rate reduction to 4.9. More than half of the costs of this go to that uh, one particular issue, uh, dropping the top tax rate. The governor's proposal would lower the state's top income tax rate to roughly 5 percent retroactive to the beginning of the year. It would also include a one-time reduction for lower-income Arkansans. The shower says that likely would have little effect. The 50 percent of Arkansans making less than $40,000 barely get half of the benefits of this quote-unquote low-income tax cut. Some taxpayers in the highest tax bracket making 87000 or more are going to receive some of the benefits of that tax cut. And of course, they're the ones receiving the vast majority of the benefits from the top rate reduction, too. Governor Hutchinson has said the cuts are needed to provide relief amid rising inflation and the state's record budget surplus. Showers and other critics have called for surplus money to be used for other initiatives, such as raising teacher salaries. And with the extreme heat and lack of rain over the past week, the Arkansas Department of Agriculture Forestry Division firefighters have suppressed about a dozen wildfires a day, including in western and northwest Arkansas. Crews, as of late yesterday, were working seven wildfires across the state, including some in the Ozarks. County officials have increased enacted burn bans now in place across 69 of 75 Arkansas counties. The Jones Center in downtown Springdale presents the worst-case scenario survival experience, an interactive exhibition for kids and families that put survival skills to the test. Activities include a quicksand ball pit, climbing a wall, picking a lock, and more. Tickets at thejonescenter.net. KUAF is supported by Penguin Ed's Barbecue, open for curbside pickup seven days a week at Mission and Crossover in Fayetteville, and open seven days a week with dine-in, patio, and curbside pickup at the historic B&B location. PenguinEds.com for menus and more. Just ahead, Randy Dixon brings us more archives from the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. This week, an examination of the cult leader and longtime Arkansas resident, Tony Alamo. That's just ahead. We're a little bit more than a month away from the next Fayetteville Roots Festival. Scheduled to perform this year, the Wood Brothers, Taj Mahal, Betty LeVette, and favorites of Ozarks at Large like Joe Purdy and the sons of Otis Malone. You can find the entire schedule at FayettevilleRoots.org. John Fulbright, who has thrilled us at several previous Roots Fests, isn't scheduled to be here. But, Fulbright fans, we do have great news. After eight years, we're getting a new John Fulbright album in September. Fourth of July, fireworks screaming in cerulean skies, claimed by the cannon blast. Seemed like my heart always beat too fast. Oh, sister, I have seen my share. Ain't nothing you could say could keep the king from my stare. That's the first single from the new album. 
The song is Paranoid Heart. September 30th, his new record, The Liar, will be released. It's his first since his Grammy-nominated songs. And I'm happy to report that finally, his song, Stars, will be available on a record. That's the song he's performed on our show and the one we picked to play here when our pandemic shutdown first unnerved us back in March 2020. I've looked up and felt empty. I've looked up and felt nothing. I've looked up and felt sorrow like I was alone. But tonight I looked up to the stars brightly shining, and I felt like I was something in the eyes of God as He. John Fulbright's next album, The Liar is due out September 30th. My future is in the Lord. I uh, preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I intend to continue doing that. This is Ozarks at Large. That is a piece, an archive from the David and Barbara Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. And when you hear an archive, that means Randy Dixon with the Center. Can't be far behind. He's right here across the table from me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Welcome back. Thank you, Kyle. I was on uh, vacation at the lake last week and uh it's hot yeah and well you get the water and you know it was 101 or 102 outside and you get in the water it's about 98 so it's tepid like get, i think is the... in a, it was more like getting into a hot tub yeah you brought in a, 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 a incredibly interesting slice of arkansas history with you this time right and everyone i talked to who knew of this person or this couple uh, thought, oh, this is going to be great. And if you don't, it's it's a fascinating story. Tony and Susan Alamo. Mainly um, Tony Alamo because his wife died early, and that's a whole other story we're going to get into in this segment. Tony Alamo, who was literally a cult leader, a megalomaniac, a pedophile, um, and a scary person. Yeah, he... Um, he started the the Tony Alamo Christian Ministries with his wife Susan back in the early 70s Um, and they were out in California and they were in Florida they had these camps or compounds that they would they would start they wouldn't call it a cult but that's that's what it was and they they bought in 75 bought a bunch of land near Alma more in the probably the town of Dyer. Right. So it's close to us. And I remember going down the interstate, and you could see their compound from the freeway. And they had a restaurant. Well, they had a restaurant. They had a gas station. They Pretty much every business that was at that Alma exit, they owned and operated. And that's what got them into all started with the trouble. Right. And, you know, it was just the tip of the iceberg. Uh with these folks so they get this land they set up the main branch in arkansas they're still running this stuff out in california it's outside of hollywood and uh in florida and in tennessee they had a big uh place outside of nashville and had a big business there but what got them into trouble is uh 
after they started their businesses in uh, Alma, um, the Labor Department started investigating and um, brought charges uh, for violations of the Fair Labor Act, Labor Act. So he was basically having his church members work for free. It was right. slave labor yes. is what it was, and they, they caught him on it. Now, I was going through the files looking for items, and uh, the earliest thing I found was in 1977, and it's in the KTV archive, and uh, while uh, he was in court on some of those labor charges. The whole thing was illegal and immoral, uh, what the judge did, to think uh, that uh, a judge would be able to come in and issue an order such as this. I believe that uh, any judge that would do a thing like that should be jailed. And uh, to think that anyone could come in and manipulate the courts as they did, and the state police, or any police enforcement for that matter, is uh, an out-and-out -out disgrace to the uh, state of Arkansas, the people of the state of Arkansas. He mentioned in there he was bad-mouthing the judge mm -hmm. in the case, and he really had it bad for judges. And there's even another story oh, yeah. coming up uh, about uh, a judge from Arkansas. But just to kind of fill you in even more, because we've been a little vague about who this guy is and what all he did, <laughs> but there's a 1982 uh, report here uh, from a reporter named Philip Bruce from KATV, and um, he kind of brings us up to date up to 1982 as to what's going on. And the, you'll hear another person in this report, and it has to do with Susan Alamo, who had passed away at this point of cancer, and um, what to do with her body. And the person you hear from is Arthur Larimore from the health department. Religious Foundation owns and operates a restaurant and four other businesses here, including a supermarket and a filling station. More than 80 other Alamo-owned enterprises are in operation elsewhere across the country. The driving force behind this multi-million dollar enterprise was Susan Alamo, a one-time actress and showgirl who turned evangelist. But since cancer claimed her life on April 8th, the Foundation members who work for the various businesses here have been in mourning and they are saying very little to the public about the impact that her death has had. Visitors are not welcome, but from the air one can see the Alamo's home and the huge dormitories nearby where untold numbers of Foundation members live. Since her death, Mrs. Alamo's body has been kept somewhere here at the Foundation estate until a mausoleum or some other burial site can be prepared. It's my impression that uh, they either want to establish a, a maybe a family type site, uh, burial area, subsurface, or maybe above surface. I, I don't know. Our mortuaries are busy, like most places, but people are uh, in turn in you know established cemeteries, and this is a bit unusual. I heard one reporter describe him as being lost mm. when she was gone. And you heard him talking in that report about it was the love of his life. And um, he, uh, when she died, they started to build a mausoleum for her, which took about six months. And they kept the body in the house. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I've heard rumors, and you've heard them too. Oh, there were rumors all over the place. That she was kept in a deep freeze, a freezer, mm-hmm. just a chest freezer uh, in the house. But then I've also heard or read printed reports that uh, she was embalmed, and they kept her in the house sort of with a altar uh, that he had his followers right. pray 24-7 for that six months over her body for her to be resurrected. To come back to life. Yes, basically. Um, so the guy we heard from before, Philip Bruce, a uh, good friend of mine, was a reporter at KTV, late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, he has worked in Houston and L.A., and he was actually with NPR uh, in Los Angeles right. for a period of time. But he was one of the few reporters that was able to connect with Tony Alamo and interviewed him on several occasions. So I got him on the phone the other day and talked to him about his impressions of Tony Alamo. He in person was very much like I think what people had seen of him in news clips. He always seemed uh, he always seemed somewhat protected, somewhat guarded in, in the way he dealt with you. He always wore the shades, you know. He always had that 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 Tony Alamo look. He looked in person like he did when you saw him anywhere else. But when you talk to him at length, it's like talking to any other human being. You get a little sense of what they're about, and. Uh, I didn't get the sense that he was, uh, well, let me put it this way. I, I think that once he determined that we were okay, he felt grateful to some degree that he had a chance to tell his story. Because, you know, I I don't remember all the particulars of all the things we were reporting back then, but, I mean, he was very much on the news. Um, you know, there have been all kinds of stories about what the organization was up to and what they had done um uh, uh, following his wife's death and, and all kinds of things. And um, he was, he, I think he was somewhat grateful to be able to tell his side of things to someone that he maybe, I don't know if he trusted, but at least he felt like I would give him a fair shake. The thing about Tony Alamo is he did want to get, he, he did want to exist in a vacuum, right? I mean, oh. he wanted, he wanted to, he liked television and oh he craved the right. attention and that's he, the best way to put it yeah and he fancied himself i guess you would say an entertainer so here's more about what philip bruce said about being around alamo there was always an odd vibe about being in his presence because he was never alone he always had these people around him and they weren't threatening or they weren't you know they weren't they weren't trying to make you uncomfortable, but just they were kind of an odd bunch, you know, and uh, and you got that sense by by being around them. He had his own view of reality. I mean, that was pretty clear. I mean, he would he would talk about things and and um, you know he he was he was a typical guy in his situation who would always steer the conversation of what he wanted to talk about, regardless of what you ask him. That said. Um, I would ask him questions that I wanted answered, and I would just keep asking, and he would eventually kind of get around to something resembling an answer. Um, you know, we were obviously interested in the inner workings of that compound, and we did not get grand tours of that place. So while they were friendly and would let us on the property, we were very limited to where we could go. 
and of what we could shoot. So during his legal problems in the early 80s, uh, he, Tony, like we talked about, loved the spotlight. Yes. And, and he would always take an opportunity. I can remember he would be walking out of court and go straight to the cameras. Because he's All also he'd have to do is stand out there and wait for him, and he would come up, and boy, he would have, and he knew what a sound bite was. Mm-hmm. He knew to keep it to you know under 30 seconds, and he'd make it on the news. Because we believe that the freedom of religion is at stake. We put years and years into uh, uh, the foundation here, and uh, into the Lord. And uh, we know that without a doubt that the freedom of religion is in peril, not only for us, but for everybody. He's and also recruiting every oh, time he's in front of a camera, right? I'm, he's a cult I'm, leader, so he is trying to get more people into his cult. Yeah, I mean, the, the more attention, the better. And, you know, right. like they used to say, even bad press is he good press. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a lady you know... Uh, well, I interviewed, yeah. Right, by the name of Debbie Shriver. Yeah. Uh, wrote a book called Whispering in the Daylight, and she focused on the children oh. that lived through uh, this cult because they, you know, they lived in a compound. They were completely controlled by him. I found a, a clip here that she was speaking to the uh, Clinton School of Public Service in 2018. And she explains here sort of how the foundation operated and and really what life was like to be a member of this, what he called a church. Tony Alamo and Susan Fleetwood at the time, and then Lipowitz, met in Hollywood, California. They established the Tony and Susan Alamo Foundation in 1970 with over 1,000 members by 2008. The compound in Saugus Canyon had expanded to many sites within the U.S. as well as some overseas places. The Alamas were operating a multi-million dollar business through the forced free labor of their followers, reselling donations that were made by national chains and throughout other shady dealings. They made a lot of money and it was all tax exempt because it was to the church. The lives of the followers were brutal. Behind a fence, guarded by security cameras and armed men 24-7, rules were rigidly upheld, even though they were also changed often, so the rules were inconsistent. Isolation, random and frequent reorganization of families, units, hunger and sleep deprivation were used as coercive tools, to break down and indoctrinate the members. Public beatings of children were common, and caregivers and siblings often reported bad behavior to Alamo, which resulted in beatings and general widespread lack of trust. So Tony enforced his rules through the tattle system, and members believed that he could read their minds. And so if they didn't report something, he might, he would know it, and he would get me because I didn't report it. That's Debbie Shriver speaking at the Clinton School of Public Service in 2018 about her book, Whispering in the Daylight, The Children of Tony Alamo Christian Ministries. I read the book. It's, it's harrowing, and I will tell you, it's worth the read, but it's a tough read because of what the, 
the young people in that cult endured. Right. Just just from her 40-minute speech to the Clinton School, Yeah, uh, she has some some stories. During all this, his, his legal problems just continued to pile on, but he continued to preach in front of the cameras. Five solid years they've been harassing us, just like they're harassing us now, even though they know uh, that what they're saying is absolutely untrue. All right, so we're in the uh, 1980s still here at this point, right? Yes, early 80s, and then just throughout the rest of the 80s, he was in the spotlight in court and in the media, and he just didn't really seem phased by it. But the IRS and former cult members who filed against him won cases, and he owed, ended up owing millions. Yeah. And uh, so he disappeared. Yeah, he, he just did. dropped he, off right. the face of the earth. Nobody knew where he was. And so in his absence, the government decided to uh, seize all the property there in uh, Dyer and uh, his other properties in Nashville and California and Florida and sell it at auction. Now, the most valuable uh, items that went up and people went crazy over. He he had a business in Nashville that he would design these celebrity rhinestone denim jackets, right? Denim yeah. jackets, and I mean, they they were like nothing I'd ever seen before. I mean, they were you think bedazzled, and that is nothing that would describe these. Everyone was unique and handmade with slave labor. Right. Yeah. So um, here's a report of um, coverage of the auction from 1991 by KATV's Pam Smith. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to start the auction. Well over a thousand gathered for the first day of bidding and to get a first-hand look at goodies created by the Alamo Foundation. Jackets sold for between $100 to well over $1,000. Mrs. Strunk has eyed the jackets for a long time. Even though it cost her $1,300, today's purchase was a dream come true. Well, it's, it's a lot of money, but I work hard and this can be my Christmas present. On the average, they're averaging better than I thought they would. Buyers came from everywhere. We do very well with him. He has a really fine product. Uh, you know, I may not agree with the politics of the situation, but the product's really good. Well, so far, I've been kind of disappointed because, uh, but you never know at auction. Right now, most of the people are paying more for the jackets than they, than they go for wholesale. But I think a lot of them are doing it because it's just something they want. So they're not paying a lot of attention to the price or the value of them. They're just bidding. Rumors had been circulating that Tony Alama might make a surprise appearance. U.S. Marshals say they'd welcome that. If you know where he is, send him a message and tell him we're wanting to see him. Although the auction started off slow, the pace picked up once the most prized and sought-after jackets were offered. They'll be sold in bundles when day two of the auction continues. In Alma, Pamela Smith, Channel 7 News. If I, and you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, okay. Andy. At this point, the public, the greater public, didn't know much about his pedophilia and his, oh, his no, no, no. Those, exploitation those of young women and girls. The, the, 
the child abuse hadn't come up yet. Right. It was just it's happening, starting, but we don't know. Right. It was just starting to surface. Right. So so I just want to point out at this point, he was kind of seen as this weird comical figure. Oh yeah. As opposed to a dangerous horribly dangerous. Character. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um you know, he's disappeared. Nobody can find him. Well, they caught up with him, and they found him in Tampa, Florida. And that's when the child abuse, and uh, he actually threatened the life of a federal judge, who, by the way, of course, was from Arkansas. Right. Uh, judge Morris Arnold. And so they caught up with him in 1991 in Tampa, Florida. And here's a portion of the news coverage. Preach the King James Version of the Bible, the Old and New Testament. Tony Alamo had plenty to say as he was escorted out of the federal courthouse in Tampa. He denies his group is a cult. He denies child abuse charges. He denies he's been hiding from federal agents. He denies everything. Did you threaten a federal judge? No. Why are you charged with that? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm framed. Let's now talk about him threatening a judge because that carried on for a couple of years. And finally, it went to trial. And he was found not guilty. So here's a report from KETV's Tara Bloom. Well, I, you can't tell what a jury's going to do. You know, I know what I hope. Carrie Miller has been closely following the Tony Alamo trial this week. As a former member of Alamo's so-called cult, Miller was awarded a $1.5 million judgment from Alamo two years ago by this man, federal judge Morris Arnold. In this trial, the jury had to decide if Tony Alamo threatened Arnold's life in a series of phone calls and taped sermons. In closing arguments, U.S. Attorney Mike Fitzhugh stressed to jurors that Alamo's threats were not harmless religious rhetoric. He told them, quote, Tony Alamo knew the meaning of those words when he uttered them, and he did so because he was angry. The tactic Alamo's attorneys have taken is to argue that their client's First Amendment rights are on trial. Yes, I think it's illegal to threaten someone. I don't think preaching a sermon should be made illegal. Even though Alamo was found innocent today, he will not walk away a free man. He still faces child abuse charges in California. Found not guilty, but obviously other charges for so many other things are... Right. You know, Tara was saying, hold on, there's right. you know, more to come. But wait, there's more. Yeah. And those were the child abuse charges. Now, Debbie Shriver... Who wrote that book. Yes. And you were talking about some tough parts. Yeah. This is one of those tough parts. And I, I want to just warn that this is a little, you know, PG-13. Yeah. It's uh, a little hard to hear. Tony taught that once girls had their periods, they were ready to be married. And so he would appoint marriages. He would... You know, an older man would come and he would say, marry this child, young woman now, eight, nine, ten years old. Um, and he also freely took those girls for his wives and, in fact, had many girls living in his house after, after his wife Susan had died. And he, he took them as wives and he also uh, raped them, molested them, beat them. The followers truly believed that if they left Tony Alamo's church, 
they would be killed. That's Debbie Schreiber. And again, she wrote the book, Whispering in the Daylight, The Children of Tony Alamo Christian Ministries. That's right. Yeah. And she didn't mince words. No, no. Um, so let's fast forward to 2009. And Alamo was found guilty on 10 counts of taking underage girls across state lines for sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up being sentenced to 175 years in prison, and he died in 2017 at the age of 82 in a North Carolina prison. Hello again, Tony and Susan Alamo come your way with another half hour of gospel songs and testimonies. So Philip Bruce told me that Alamo was very savvy uh, as far as the broadcast media was concerned. And the Alamos back in the early days, like most televangelists, Mm -hmm. had a syndicated program. And that's what we heard, a little introduction there to it. And they had a national following. Now, we talked earlier about the Coates and being in Nashville. Well, he rubbed uh, elbows with all kinds of country music stars, and they cut an album. Yeah. And it was produced by none other than Porter Wagner. And I got a hold of that album about, it was more than 20 years ago that at KTV, when he and it may have been in '91 when he was captured, because I got on eBay and I found the album and I bought it and I thought someday <laughs> this is going to come in handy. Mr. DJ, would you please play that old rugged cross? You know it saved me and it gave me. The hope I thought I'd lost I was a doubter A down and outer Drunk and dirty This will just uh, give you a small hint of just the bizarre, twisted world of Tony Alamo. Yes, by the way, can I throw in one other bit of Please. trivia? His, uh, his actual name, he was born oh, yes. in Joplin, Missouri, and his name, his real name, was Bernie Lazar Hoffman. There you go. Randy Dixon, who's with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. You can find out much more about Arkansas history. Just put Pryor Center into a search engine. Thank you, Randy. To the beggars of the street, he gave them more gold and silver. He gave them something to believe. This is Ozarks at Large. Let's talk volunteer opportunities. The annual Fill the Bus School Supply event back at certain Walmart Supercenters this month. Sponsored by United Way of NWA, 13 area school districts will benefit from the drive. The United Way is seeking volunteers to help with that drive. It's taking place Friday and Saturday. Volunteer shifts start at 8.30, 11, and 1 each day. More details at unitedwaynwa.org. The University of Arkansas Class of 26 could use a little help. Volunteers to help students move into residence halls are needed for August 12th and 13th. That's a Friday and a Saturday. Every member of the U of A and the Fayetteville community invited to join. Volunteers receive a special move-in hat and a free lunch. Individuals or groups can volunteer through Give Pulse, where there are more details about the specific opportunities and shift times. Final day to register, Sunday, August 7th. You can find out more by going to uark.givepulse.com and look for the University Housing 
move-in page. And hot air balloons are returning to Drake Field this summer. The SOAR fundraiser, hosted by and benefiting Open Avenues, scheduled for August 26th and 27th. In addition to the hot air balloons, there will be live music, a car show, and more. You can find out about tickets at SOARNWA.com. The event also needs volunteers who receive free admission, free T-shirts, and access to the volunteer hospitality area. There's a link to more about volunteering at SOARNWA.com. Join KUAF for a live podcast recording of the final episode of The R Word, Thursday, July 28th. Host of the podcast, Lowell Taylor, will moderate a discussion about reparations and the white Christian church's response to racism in Northwest Arkansas with Reverend Stephen Ivey, Reverend Suzanne Bridges, Dustin McGowan, and Chris Seawood. Their conversation will be recorded and released as the fourth and final episode of the limited series podcast, The R Word. We hope you can join us for this community conversation Thursday, July 28th at the historic St. James Missionary Baptist Church on North Street in Fayetteville, beginning at 6 o'clock. For more information and to RSVP, search Facebook for The R Word, A Community Conversation. We hope to see you there. This is Ozarks at Large. Now, a warning for all the gardeners out there. A toxic and invasive creature could be lurking beneath that mulch pile of yours. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth digs up the facts you need to know about the suspicious worms popping up all over our region. They're slimy, they can dissolve their prey, they can regenerate when cut in half, and they're being spotted in gardens all across our region. Hammerhead worms are a terrestrial planarian. That means they're a flatworm. Uh, if you remember basic biology, planaria flatworms, that, and ones we played with in biology lab were freshwater flatworms or saltwater flatworms and terrestrial flatworms. That's Dr. Vic Ford, Associate Vice President for Agriculture and Natural Resources with the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. He says hammerhead worms are becoming more common in Arkansas and other parts of the Mid-South. And he says the worms have been spotted in at least 10 counties, including parts of northwest Arkansas and the River Valley. Hammerhead worms are invasive species. Uh, They were brought here from uh, other places, and particularly Asia, through transporting of plants or soil Uh, into the United States and spread from there. The worms, which can grow up to 15 inches long, are native to Southeast Asia and were first identified in South Arkansas nearly 10 years ago. Because they are indigenous to tropical and subtropical climates, Ford says they prefer moist, dark environments. You're going to find them in in places, you know, under boards, under rocks, around your your mulch garden. So that's the kind of thing. You're not going to find them out in a dry in a dry location or or a bare field. And hammerhead worms have a distinctive flat head that fans out from its body, making them easy to identify. Ford says the worms are carnivorous and eat slugs, snails, insect larvae, earthworms, and have even been known to eat other hammerhead worms. They are predators of earthworms. They are covered with slime. The slime has the same toxin as pufferfish, and that's how they uh, uh, subdue their prey is that this, literally the slime 
has a narcotic effect on slugs and, and earthworms and other things that they prey upon. And then they use the mouth to, to submit digestive juices and then, and then able to pull uh, pieces of the uh, uh, prey into, into their uh, body. And Ford says that neurotoxin that helps the worms inoculate their prey can also be harmful to pets and cause irritation and skin rash in humans. So if you see one, Ford says, do not touch it. Because of the reaction most people have uh, to the worm slime, we recommend not picking them up with your bare hands. We recommend uh, using gloves. Children are susceptible, and pets are susceptible, particularly if they ingest the worm. So, you know, keeping them away, uh, getting the worm out of the yard. But there can be reactions to the worms. We're not hearing a lot uh, per se, but there, there is that possibility. So if you do stumble on a hammerhead worm in your backyard, what should you do to get rid of it? Ford says killing them can be a bit of a challenge. They reproduce by... Uh, primarily by asexual uh, reproduction, by breaking pieces of the uh, tail off, and each becomes a new worm. Uh, We do not ever recommend cutting them into pieces to quote-unquote kill them because each piece will become a new worm. And what's interesting about planaria, each individual piece will retain the memories of the original worm. So I don't know what kind of memories a a hammerhead worm has, but they will retain those those kind of memories. And uh, we recommend uh, spraying them with, with uh, vinegar, covering them with salt like you would do a slug, or putting uh, a citrus oil on top of them. But don't cut them up and thinking you're going to kill them. He says you can also kill the worms by placing them in a bag or container and then freezing them overnight to dispose of the next day. Still, Ford says the worms aren't exactly taking over, but what's most concerning to him are how these new worms may impact local ecosystems in the future. In terms of of affecting uh, crops or any of that kind of thing, we don't think there's going to be an effect on that. Their numbers are here and yon, so we're not really concerned about that. I'm more concerned about the long-term ecological effects. They are having an effect, but what that effect is, we're uncertain at this time. He says because they eat earthworms, which distribute and nourish soil, The hammerheads may be harmful, but he says more research needs to be done. The Extension Office is no longer collecting information on the worms, but Ford encourages people to report sightings to inaturalist.org. For more information on hammerhead worms, you can visit the U of A Division of Agriculture website at uaex.uada.edu. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. And Daniel's reporting comes to us from the Karen Taha News Studio. Tomorrow in Ozarks, a Fayetteville veteran this past spring volunteered with the Ukraine Foreign Legion. I was a infantry squad leader. Uh, we were light infantry, but also mechanized, meaning heavy uh, armored vehicles and troop transports. That story, plus attempts at regulating traffic flow in fast-growing Rogers, And we'll meet artist and graphic designer Casey Burke. That's tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. And you can carry us with you via the Ozarks at Large podcast, available where you prefer to get your podcasts. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. 
The 2022 Fayetteville Roots Festival is August 25th through the 27th. This festival of roots music, local food, and Ozark culture will feature national and local performers and chefs at numerous events throughout Fayetteville, including the Fayetteville Public Library, Maxine's, George's Majestic Lounge, and Roots HQ. Event tickets, passes to local restaurant takeovers, late-night stage tickets, and more are available at FayettevilleRoots.org. The Fort Smith American Legion baseball team is playing for the state championship tonight in Conway. Fort Smith forced a winner-take-all game tonight against Paragould with a 6-4 win yesterday over Paragould on the campus of the University of Central Arkansas. Arkansas Razorback sophomore Britton Wilson helped the United States take the gold in the 1,600-meter relay race at the World Championships in Oregon yesterday. Wilson's time of just under 50 seconds was the second fastest in the finals. And the middle race in the Natural State Criterium Series is Wednesday afternoon and evening in downtown Springdale. A 20-minute Criterium Clinic will be held for interested riders at 4.30 and then the first of four different races beginning at 5. Cyclists will be competing for a $4,000 overall cash purse and a minimum of $4,000 for cash primes plus product and gift certificates for the series. First races held in June attracted more than 100 riders from beginners to pros. More about the Natural State Criterium Series can be found at downtownspringdale.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lake Leatherwood. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today's show included contributions from Matthew Moore, Daniel Carruth, and Randy Dixon. Additional material today came from Jacqueline Froelich and our partners in public radio, KUAR in Little Rock. Matthew Moore produced today's show inside Studio 120 at the Carver Center for Public Radio. By the way, thanks to Piracoco for performing in our lobby Friday as the featured artist for this month's lunch hour. And a big thank you to Mo Tacos and Churros for providing the lunch in our lunch hour Friday afternoon. Lens Audio recorded the concert, and you'll be able to see the performance, which was, quite frankly, amazing. You'll be able to see that soon. Stay tuned here for more details. We're back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large. Thanks so much for your time and your support. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Callums.